Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 134. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today... The Adelaide Fringe. Eleanor Kirschbaum is one of the programme directors at Gluttony. Gluttony is one of two hub venues at the Adelaide Fringe Festival in Australia. I got her on to talk about the Fringe, where Gluttony sits within the festival, how they scout for shows, what makes a Gluttony show, how to promote a show when you don't live in Australia, why they have sponsors and how those have impacted the growth of the venue and the festival, and so much more. We recorded this at Gluttony, which is built in a park, so there is a little bit of background noise and crackling. I have tried to get rid of it. Uh, For the most part, I have, but I just wanted to flag that there is a bit of crackly, backgroundy, noisy stuff that I couldn't get rid of. But that is a hazard of recording in a field. It's all perfectly listenable. Listenable? It's Yeah, why not? It's all perfectly listenable, but... Uh, you might get like a small bit of uh, small bit of uh, annoying adjacent noise every now and then. Uh, I'm currently not gigging uh, due to the coronavirus, not my own choice. As a result, if you would like to donate towards the podcast or become a patron, there has never been a better time to do it, as currently this is my only income and it is not enough to live on. So... If you check out the show notes, uh, there'll be links in there for everything. Uh, I would massively appreciate any and all donations of any size. If this is offering anything to your entertainment life, uh, if you can afford it, that would be amazing. If you can't afford it, three ways you can help out is joining the Facebook group or subscribing on YouTube. If I can get over a thousand subscribers on YouTube, I can actually apply for monetization and get some money for the views. So if you can, if you can do that, that'd be great. Again, that is linked in the show notes. Equally, my podcast called Quarantine is linked below. Uh, At the moment, I'm not really pushing it that far or wide, but it's uh, a little bit of a a chatty podcast with me uh, a few times a week. So if you want to check that out, please do. It's linked below. And uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll get something out of it. I don't know what, but I'm hoping you'll get some sort of humor and enjoyment out of storytelling and jokes. So check it out. Links are all in the show notes. Before I hit play, if you're new here, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review on iTunes. And either way, please do join the Facebook group. It's called RC Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. But for now, this 
is Eleanor Kirschbaum. Yeah, cool. is he? Uh, so Gluttony's been running for 10 years. It actually started as a one-day uh, food and wine festival, which is why it had right. the name Gluttony. So it, it was a one-day food and wine festival that happened as a part of the Fringe Festival. Then the next year, the creators wanted to turn it into a proper Fringe Hub. I was actually not one of the founding members, but was involved from the first year. So the first year it became a Fringe Club, I brought a little venue that I was touring around doing arts festivals with, which is called The Bally, which is still a part of the festival today. So, yeah, so I brought that venue. I had my own little program of, of work and I got along really well with the guys who were creating Gluttony so for the next couple of years I was involved in different ways and then uh, after three years Daniel who was one of the founding members his business partner had had enough uh, had enough of losing money <laughs> pretty much yeah. and uh, and so uh, so they uh, so he invited me to, to buy in as, as his partner so so I've been involved since the start uh, but it was it was Daniel's baby from from the beginning and we were tiny back in the day we were across the road from where we are now it was was very very small you know we were kind of a, a blip in the radar of the Adelaide Fringe and yeah and now 10 years on it's kind of grown into this uh, really big park so now we're the the biggest park in terms of the number of venues and, and number of shows and things and uh, yeah I guess take up a fair bit of the real estate with, when it comes to the Adelaide Fringe Festival. Completely. Yeah, for, for context, uh, we're at the Adelaide Festival at the moment and you are basically within the central part, well, sort of to the east, is it the east of the city? Yeah. yeah. So you're you're taking up a, a big chunk of the park that's within the east of the city and you're sort of opposite the um, rival, should we say, which is uh, the Garden of Iron Earthly Delights who run a similar model on the other part of the park. And essentially between the two of you, you are, you are I would say, over half of the festival. Would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah, we probably are. I mean, I guess it depends on how you would define that. I mean, <laughs> mm. in terms of of the number of shows uh, were certainly not, but in the same way as, say, for example, Edinburgh Fringe, I think that the hub venues sort of, uh, you know, dominate quite a large part of, of mm-hmm. the festival, which is not to say that there aren't beautiful boutique <laughs> venues all over the city, you know, with amazing shows. But certainly in terms of, uh, you know, the sort of physical presence of the festival, I think that um, we're a really big part of that. Yeah, definitely. And so and so an obvious question would be, what makes a gluttony show? What are you looking for? It's a difficult question to answer because we're <laughs> actually mostly we're looking for diversity we what we want is to have any like you know anyone could walk into the venue at any time of night and there would be something that they want to see and so you know and to, to greater and lesser extents we achieve that obviously you know we are picking from the shows that are available that want to come with us and, and that we think are going to suit our venues because obviously most of our venues are tents and so there are plenty of shows that just will not work in in tents in this very noisy environment so you know we have sort of a, a limited number of things that we can choose from but but what we really want is you know for for any demo graphic to kind of be able to walk in and and there to be something that suits them and so in terms of what we're looking for I guess we're looking for things you know we're looking for shows that are of a very high quality or that are really interesting um, we also support a lot of emerging artists and local artists so not everything necessarily has to be at the absolute peak of its performing career you know we really like to to work with people who are making new work and um, you know emerging artists getting things off the ground but I guess what we're looking for is you know great great concepts great ideas and and, and good execution but had a, had a really broad range of things so uh, yeah you know we want we want a 14 year old boy to be able to come in with his family and find something to see we want you know an 80 year old to be able to come in and see some quirky you know some quirky theater like whatever it happens to be you know a bit of something for everyone yeah definitely and and i've i've noticed that within my demographic of audiences over my run so far that you, you sort of you can't second guess your flyering either because like uh, you know in edinburgh you sort of think well i i know roughly who's been enjoying it in previous whereas here i'm giving 
giving them to pretty much anyone who I think you know looks like they're looking for comedy. That's mm-hmm. my only remit because <laughs> because like the people that are coming in, my my age demographic is just a lot broader here. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's nice because I mean I had had a very old lady in my audience who on her way in I thought. Oh, she might not like this, and I do. I do sort of a quite dirty joke in the middle, and she just went Woo! like out loud, and I was like, "Okay, <laughs> that is not who I thought would love that joke." Yeah. And so, and so, it's quite refreshing in that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember one of the first uh, <laughs> because I come. I was a performer as well when I was mm. starting out, and I used to do a show that was on a midnight, and mm. it was you know a late night cabaret lineup show. I was shocked that when I started flyering I was flyering kind of younger people who I thought were you know wanted to come out and have a party show and then I realized that that was not my audience at all <laughs> and I was almost exclusively flyering groups of uh, of older people and you know if they were still in the park at 10 p.m then I thought okay well maybe they're going to have one more bottle of wine and still be in the park at midnight <laughs> yep. and uh yeah so I, I mean I think you're right I think that mm. the, the the demographic range is quite big and I think that's for two reasons probably because the festival's quite old the festival's mm. been running for 60 years so if you're an Adelaide local and you're the kind of person who's going to come out and engage with the fringe festival then then you do you know yeah. then then you do come out and you do engage with things mm-hmm. but it's much smaller than edinburgh in terms of mm. the number of people who are here so mm. you know it's not a holiday period most of the people who are coming to see shows are adelaide locals mm-hmm. and so there isn't that incredibly large audience to be marketing to and so i mm-hmm. think that um that people are used to seeing things that maybe fall just slightly outside of what their normal uh, range of things to see would be have you been to the Brighton Fringe in England? Yeah. I, I keep comparing it to Brighton Fringe. I feel like that's mm. that's more of a, in terms of size and in terms of the way it operates. Because when I came out here, I kept thinking of it like another Edinburgh. Uh-huh. And and very quickly I realised, oh no, everyone's at work still. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like like it's not it's not uh, a festival where people are coming in for a weekend or a week specifically to see, you know, what's going to be picked up and put on TV for the week or whatever it is. Yeah. It's not quite like that. But equally, and we'll, we'll get to this later, you know, the Fringe are offering such amazing opportunities to be seen by festivals and be seen by industry it's it's surpassed what i got in edinburgh and i got quite a lot in edinburgh. amazing so so for me that's been a really <laughs> weird one where you're sort of like how come i have to come to this side of the world <laughs> to get these opportunities when because uh, here you're exotic oh all oh, that accent is that what yeah. it is I, I keep forgetting i have an accent that's the problem it's uh yeah, the Br- British is yeah. the yeah yeah. I, I do go overly British when I'm flying. I'm like, can I give you a flyer? Like it's 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 probably helping, but also I feel really anxious. I actually yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So in England, we actually have a lot of things moving in that way as well with diversity. Um, there's a few things moving around, especially within TV and stuff to do with quotas. And is it a case of? I mean, is is it as stringent as that with you? Is it like you have sort of a a, a gender or a, or a race based quota system, or is it a case of? Uh no, we certainly don't have a quota. I think that myself and my business partner um, and the other members of our programming team are all I think that we're just you know we're lefty latte types we you know we uh you know we want to see diversity on stages mm. that's something for me because i make work as well mm. um that's an extremely important thing for me when i'm making work because i think that diverse representation is just so important and one of the best political messages that we can make without even making a political message Definitely. you know yeah and so so that's just something that we're interested in and so uh it's certainly in the last couple of years something that we've thought about quite a lot particularly uh when it comes to first nation australians mm-hmm. um and trying to make sure that there is uh, accessible platforms for uh, you know f- for Indigenous Australians who are making work because um, that's you know one particular area that I think often don't necessarily have access to the same kind of resources that uh, that that other people have just in terms of having that platform. Um, but that's probably the only one 
that we've really made a deliberate and concerted effort to make sure that there is space available. I would say with everything else, it just comes from a passion from all of us to have that diverse representation. And, and you know, as with the, uh, the other programming stuff that I said, you, we can only work in terms of sort of what's available, um, but but it is something that that is really important to us, and so we do try and make sure that we have work that is that is empowering and does have that diversity in terms of um, what people, the kind of work that people are see, the the people that they see on stage, and also the stories that are being told on stage. Completely, and and when it comes to you finding shows, obviously there's applications on the website, but do you go around and scout for shows? Do you have to see a show before it, uh, like go it comes here? I mean, what kind of background research do you do like for the artist and like what they've been doing in the past like how does that work for you we do we do a bit of both so people contact us so when our applications open at the beginning of august we a lot of people just apply through our expression of interest process Mm -hmm. and we don't only program things that we've seen but we try and see as much as we can because i mean our thought is that if we have seen the work we're much more likely to be able to program it into the right spot you know if we've seen the work then we go okay that's i know that that's the venue for them and that's the time slot for them uh if we haven't seen the work then we're sort of basing it you know it's a bit of guesswork on looking at what seasons they've done before having a a conversation with the artist about what's going to suit or sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just this is literally what we sort of have left whereas when you know when we've seen work it's much much easier for us to go like okay i know exactly where that's going to go so we try and see as much as we can we obviously see things that are here in adelaide um we see things in melbourne so part of our programming team is based in melbourne we we travel quite a lot around australia when we can to see things Mm -hmm. we always go over to edinburgh so there's always going to be at least one person from our program team in Edinburgh usually two or three uh, and then we just and then it just depends a little bit on on where else we are in the world um, we've got a show here this year that we were uh, lucky enough to see myself and someone else from our programming team happen to be uh, in London one weekend and they happen to be doing a show so so you know it's definitely if people are looking to perform in gluttony uh, it's worth reaching out and just letting us know what you know when and where you're going to be uh, doing things it, no matter what sort of time of year it is because we're seeing things throughout the year so. yeah yeah, no, it's, um, I think I think a lot of, I mean, I personally felt like this before I came out here, that it's kind of hard to get you to see stuff necessarily when you live, you know, literally on the other side of the world. Mm. Um, equally, Edinburgh's that great platform where a lot of people do go just to watch, you know, stuff where they can't see. And it mm. feels a little bit like that's something that Adelaide sort of brought over here in, in many ways, because there are a lot of festivals who don't go to Edinburgh now who seem to have come here, or at least that seems to be my experience so. festivals or events that are in the southern hemisphere it's much easier to come to adelaide mm. and particularly since heather Kral took over as the festival director for the adelaide fringe she's really put a lot of energy into the marketplace and making sure that the marketplace is really really strong so uh adelaide fringe has got uh, a program called the honeypot program and they invite uh, festival directors venues uh from all over the world to come here but certainly you know there is a greater uh, level of turnout from uh, from within Australia, but also particularly in Southeast Asia, and a lot of those uh, festivals and and companies wouldn't necessarily have the funds to get over to Edinburgh to a big platform like that. So, I mean, I describe Adelaide Fringe as the biggest uh, trade show of the arts in the Southern Hemisphere mm. because it's it's huge, but it's also accessible in a way that some of the other things like APAM are not necessarily accessible to smaller and mid-sized companies. Completely, and I noticed the uh, so for example. Puppetry at the Penis are here, um, and they're obviously like quite a quite a long-standing show, and so they could come back year and year. Uh, I mean, do you take shows back more than one year? I assume if you're trying to keep it diverse, and you've got obviously, even though you're quite a big footprint, you've got obviously a limited number. There's a maximum amount of shows you yeah. can take. So, <laughs> so is it a case of 
you know there it's it's like you wouldn't take people back each year because you want to like give people other opportunities or is it a case of it depends on other factors like where, where do you stand on that sort of thing yeah i think it depends a little bit um we generally say that if a show does well it has at least a couple of years in it mm. um so we do often take the same show back again um for two years and sometimes three years it just depends a little bit on uh, its popularity whether we think that it's growing or, or um dropping away i mean often a big festival like this it can take a year or more to develop a brand and Mm -hmm. and to sort of be seen because it is a big festival so uh so i often say you know it's worth coming to adelaide thinking about it with at least a two-year plan um doesn't necessarily mean that the show is going to be quite right so Mm -hmm. you know not every show is going to come back and do two years um but i think certainly the same show can if it if it does well can certainly do at least a two-year run Mm -hmm. um and you know for something some uh, you know a show like a, a stand-up comedian that brand is sort of more about the person so whether it's returning the same show a, a second time for something like stand-up comedy or whether it's more about bringing a new show but it, but you know the the brand being the person i suppose hmm. but i certainly think that there's there's some longevity i mean adelaide audiences are um i mean a bit like a bit like every festival really <laughs> they are uh they're, they're creatures of habit um, <laughs> to a large extent you know uh, certainly the shows that have got an established brand have got an advantage um, mm. being here it is it is quite a commercial festival there's plenty of audience that are still willing to take a risk and see something new mm. but you know uh, like with a lot of things there, there's a big audience that that gravitates towards the more commercial stuff um, mm. and and also the less commercial stuff but but sort of an established brand that people know so you know there's there's um, playwrights that you would not say are necessarily commercial but are an established name here and so people will go and see that work and, and same with comedians and uh, you know across a range of different genres. Mm. What would you it's kind of hard to ask this question because obviously there are m- many factors involved but as you said you know success is sort of what you'd be looking for to see whether it would come back how do you calculate that? I mean, I've, I've spoken to some friends who are here and in independent venues who are doing like better and worse numbers than me, for example. And so there's always sort of this, you know, and it, and it depends because some people who, you know, uh, I've got a friend who's in a, in a smaller venue who's doing smaller numbers, but as a percentage selling the same. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like w- what calculation comes into your <laughs> mind when you're thinking that show was a success, that wasn't, or, or that person wasn't you know in the right place or that person you know how how are you thinking about this as the programmer uh that's a great question i mean the your audience numbers compared to your uh venue is obviously you know is an obvious one and so i guess that's the 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 first benchmark that we would be looking at i mean we will also look at you know was this person in the right venue sometimes uh someone's getting a great audience you know amazing audience responses but they might be only you know half full in their venue on a weekend or, or less than uh but then but you know if if we're feeling really good about that show and the audience responses are really strong um then for us maybe it's just a matter of okay that wasn't the right venue for that person maybe you know they it was we still would call that a successful season but we'd move them into a smaller venue next year because that's really where that show should always have been uh and and you know vice versa they might be a show might be doing really really well in a venue and we'd go yeah that's really successful would they though have been as successful if we moved them into a bigger venue how much growth is left in that show Mm. if we were to move them into a bigger venue so definitely a factor that we look at i think another thing that we would consider is what is that person's goals you know if that person came here with a really specific set of goals that weren't necessarily around building an audience or developing an audience um 
you know, but they've got a really clear sense of what they wanted to get out of it and they absolutely nailed that in the first year, then, you know, we could have a conversation with them and say, okay, your audiences weren't quite there. And if they say, well, you know, my goal this year was X, Y, and Z, uh, but next year this is what I'm hoping to do, then then that also will feed into it because, mm. um, you know, we want to know that, that this person can kind of do what they put their mind to. You know, perhaps if, if building those big audience numbers wasn't what they had in mind that year and they were happy with the audiences that they were getting, um, yeah, then, you know, again, that's, that's something that we would look at. Yeah, completely. Um, one, one of the big things I, I learned about the, the, the Gluttony Hub is that, so uh, hub venues like in Edinburgh, say like the Gilded Balloon or the Assembly, obviously they run all their rooms. Whereas um, some of the f- some of the tents and the venues that you have out here are sort of, like you said, like the Bally's yours, for example. I don't know if that's still the case, but originally it was yours. And there are a few here that kind of are run by a, pr- by a company house, essentially, that kind of rent the space. How how does that work? As a, as a is it a case of you you you've got a limited amount of venues you can fit in, or is it you know you you just you rent out a space? Like what what would be the application form for being a venue within a it's, venue? It's very unusual. So we actually mm. we started like that. Like I said, um, mm. the Bally was was independent in the first year, but uh, since then we actually haven't done it, and all of the venues that we have on site are, are our own, mm. uh, apart from the little like we've got some pop up sort of um, grind show style tents. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, all, all of the morales, except for this year, we gave two tents over to um, uh, to another to another company. It's an unusual situation, though. We have actually worked with um, with Mickey and Boo, who are running those two tents uh, mm. for a long time, and they've been involved with our comedy programming for quite a number of years now. So they actually uh, give us advice in terms of um, our overall comedy programming, and that just came from a place of uh, of Daniel and myself not being in the in the comedy world so much and comedy is such a big sort of part of the industry um that you know we don't know who the up-and-comers are we don't know who's who's playing well and who's not and and all that sort of thing so uh so mickey's been you know um programming part of our our or like assisting us on part of our program for quite a while uh and this year it actually came from he wanted to run a smaller tent and um, and we sort of said that we didn't have the capacity to do that because um, the amount of sort of staff time and things like that that it takes for us to operate the small tents is is quite significant. And we felt that we were already kind of overcommitted with the tents that we had uh, had decided to run, had committed to running. So when he wanted to do a, a second smaller tent, we sort of said, okay, well, how about you guys manage these ones yourself? So it's a it's a new thing for us this year, and um, and it may well. <laughs> chop and change a thousand times mm-hmm. but generally we don't really run independent things it's only because we sort of had that existing relationship with mickey but um but yeah i mean it, it's going going really well for us this year it's been really nice that you know he's got he's got particular projects to manage um outside of some of the bigger comedians that he's also working with um on our behalf this year so yeah no i i just found that such an interesting trust level that you've put there that you obviously sort of have uh, isolated a skill set that they have and that they can offer and that it allows sort of the, the whole hub to work you know sort of elevate and, and mm. that, was, that was really sort of exciting to hear because it's sort of something that I don't think every especially in Edinburgh, every venue would maybe do that um, yeah. so it sort of struck me as like a really nice thing that you're able to do and would put yourself out there to do. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it is. I mean, it does come from a place of trust, I guess, of because course. we've worked with those guys for uh, for such a long time, and um, you know, we've we've 
established that we have a nice kind of back and forth yeah. with them and, and things. And so, and, and, you know, and I think that they've been involved for long enough to have a really good sense of um, the kind of program that we have and that we're excited about, the kind of the ethos, I guess, of the park and um, and what we, what we like, what we're excited about, um, and also what we sort of won't stand for. I mean, we hmm. really sort of pride ourselves on... Um, you know, we're not here to censor work, but at the same time, we're not interested in hosting work that has, you know, bigotry or hatred kind of at the at the core of it or, or even a sense of kind of humiliation or nastiness. Mm. It's, that's not our vibe. And so so it would be a it would be a hard ask for us to have somebody else come in and, and program, you know, or, or coordinate part of our program who didn't have a sense of who we were mm. uh, as an identity. Um, but yeah, certainly for, for Mickey and Boo and, um, uh, you know, th- there's people that we do have long-standing relationships with. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I was about to ask you a different question, but you've just uh, <laughs> sort of touched on something else. So let's go in that direction. Right. Because, so I know what you mean. I mean, like, um, I'll give an example. Um, the person I'm staying with, they took me to go and see, um, I can't remember the name, but it was The Hypnotist uh, that you've got. Oh, the name's gone from my head. It was a really good show. Matt Hale or Matt, Isaac Lumen? Matt, it was Matt. It might have been Hale. He's in. He's in the tent next to the Runaway Theatre. Oh uh, yeah, the Empire really, Theatre. So yeah, Matt it was Hale. A really yep. great show. Yep. And I said to him, uh, one of the reasons I stopped going to Hypnotist was I felt like some of the shows were a bit at the expense of the people mm-hmm. that go up on stage, or you know, it felt like they were used as the butt of a joke, or you know, it it just felt a little bit more manipulative than it needed to mm-hmm. be for that. Yeah, and he sure. was not like that. I want to make that clear. He was absolutely amazing. It was really great. But it was. It's one of those things where you've just touched on the idea of what you don't book. So mm. maybe maybe that would be a good sort of point to sort of go, well, okay, if your show has any of these themes in it, or if your show, or if you in the past maybe have, I mean, would it be a case of, I mean, I don't know if you'd go this far, but if you went back and found a tweet from like, you know, five years ago, and it was like, oh, they've got these abhorrent views, or had these abhorrent views, like how far would you go with your research into making sure that none of this is coming in? Um, I mean, unfortunately, we've got limited capacity. Of course. Um, <laughs> you know, we have hundreds of, uh, applica- like official applications each mm. year um, and you know and more than that in terms of the number of shows that we're speaking with um, mm. unofficially so yep. we can't go back you know and do heaps of research but we we certainly have conversations uh, <laughs> with with people when we're looking at booking shows you know mm-hmm. we'll we'll if it's not a show that we've seen before or an artist that we're familiar with we will have conversations uh, mm. with you know with other venues that they've been in or, um, or or take a look at you know previous shows and previous marketing materials I mean most of the time you can get a sense of a person just from from what they write in their description or just the conversations that they have so it's not something that we kind of go to huge extents to kind of make sure that we've absolutely 100% covered everything to make mm. sure that they don't have those kinds of views and and there's been times when people have uh, you know made made jokes in the show or had content in the show that we didn't feel very comfortable with and as I said we're sort of we we're not about censorship but at mm. the same time you know we the last thing we want is to put any audiences in difficult positions so in those circumstances we have you know we've taken people aside and said you know either either if we sort of felt like something was really inappropriate I mean actually that's never come up that that Mm. something was really inappropriate but there's been a few things that kind of felt that that was sort of on that line for us and so you know we have uh sort of said hey you know I'm just letting you know that joke made me feel a bit uncomfortable and so uh, you know in future years we wouldn't program work if it you know was was sort of walking on that line so yeah totally I I I think that's a it's it's a very hard line to tread where you like you said you don't want to about censorship because 
there is an element within performance where there's freedom of speech but equally with freedom of speech comes the response that's allowed to happen as well yeah uh, hello there I am loving putting this one together. I have always wanted to go to Australia and tour a show, and I loved doing it with Gluttony. I would highly recommend them, and I, um, I'm i hoping to get The Garden on, on the podcast uh, in the future. We will touch upon who The Garden is in the second half of the podcast, um, but they, in short, they are a rival uh, to Gluttony. They're the other hub venue, and... Um, They have a very interesting and differing model, but we will be talking more about that soon, so I don't want to spoil that for you too much. Plus, it's better to hear it from Eleanor than from me. So for now, I've got to eat. So I'm hoping Acast is about to put an advert in the middle of the podcast now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Did you get an ad? Um, If you did, thanks for listening. I got paid about 0.2p for it. And if you didn't, uh, remember there is a link in the show notes to give me a PayPal donation or become a patron if you're getting anything out of this episode and it's uh, helping you in any way, shape or form. Or even just if the podcast is helping you in any way, shape or form, please do consider donating because, uh, yeah, as I said, currently... I'm not getting any gigs uh, because the entire circuit has fallen apart. And so pretty much this is all the money I'm getting in. So uh, yeah, please, please donate if you can afford it. I had a really wonderful time in Australia and New Zealand and I was gutted to come home early. I'll be putting a blog up which explains exactly where I sold and how much money I made slash lost. Spoiler, it was a lot more loss than made. But that'll be out later in the year. So if you keep an eye out for that. But for now, let's jump back into the episode yes the the breakdown so not of acts but of well of acts some way but um the breakdown of the genres of acts so i wonder what your breakdown as a venue is and how that works and the breakdown if you know of the festival as a whole because i'm wondering whether yours has a bit of more of a skew towards something it does because in part um we skew towards things that are going to work in a big noisy environment so Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we we it's are. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, we have got the Masonic Hall, which yeah, uh, yeah. we you know we opened up as a as mm-hmm. a second 
sort of umbrella space and so we mm-hmm. uh and that's a lot more sound protected so we we do now have the ability to program um you know things that are a bit more theater or comedy that's really reliant on having clear space but uh, yeah obviously you know for those who have been to adelaide before or perhaps who, who know edinburgh you know it's an outdoor space it's tense mm-hmm. in a park it's noisy it's weather dependent mm-hmm. you know i mean luckily adelaide has yeah. fabulous weather so it's not such a problem but yeah. it's uh, you know there are limitations with the park and so we do tend to program i think a lot more big rowdy stuff you yeah. know so uh, big music shows, big circus shows, big cabaret. Those are probably the genres that we program the most of because mm-hmm. those are the, the genres that uh, have the best ability to kind of work in a big noisy environment like a park where mm-hmm. there is sound bleed from other other tents and mm-hmm. there are people, you know, sitting around and having a drink and chatting, you know, right next to the canvas wall of a tent. So I would say that that dominates a lot of our programming, which is not to say that it is the biggest part of the you know the program at the festival in mm. fact comedy is probably the biggest genre at the festival mm-hmm. and uh and our comedy program is uh, probably a lot more limited than some of the other spaces again you know in part just because um not all comedy works in tents um, <laughs> plenty does and and that's you know a, yep. a lot of what we do have but um but it is limited so yeah so that's kind of what we program i think the most of it also is about sort of the fashions and the trends at the time you know um comedy was absolutely dominated the festival you know eight or eight or nine years ago uh things like magic and particularly circus um have really risen in popularity a lot it's kind of in the last six seven eight years um and so we program a lot of circus circus is also my background so i think you know when i became more actively involved with gluttony uh circus started dominating the program a lot more because Mm. that's the the area that i know the genre that i know um but particularly in the last couple of years we've really seen a a trend towards music and so Mm. music now is a huge part of our program we've got um uh four i think really big choir shows this year which you know five or six years ago i would have said that there's no way that choirs would Mm. be some of the biggest part of our program uh, but you know, but it is, and and um, uh, yeah. So you know, choirs and music is a really big part of our program now. So so partly it's kind of following those trends of the things that people are really excited to go and see. And then yeah, and then and again, then it's just about uh, diversity. So like one of my favourite shows that we have in the park, which we've had sort of every couple of years or so, is uh, this amazing flamenco show that's a collaboration between some local flamenco performers, and uh, they always have some Spanish. Uh, guests as well when they when they do the season so it's just a one week run we have a very small dance program but the dance we have is is just so fabulous and, and high quality and so again it's just about sort of finding those diverse things that that we can offer so that there is something that's a bit different for everyone yeah yeah i mean i've noticed that it's, it's a lot of there's a lot of a lot more circus here than mm. i than i uh was expecting when because because as a comedian from from england who hasn't been here before everyone I spoke to was like the festival is chocked full of comedy mm. and so and so the first time when I arrived at the park and saw you know like flyers for for you know like I said choirs and singing troops and and all sorts of stuff like that I was a bit like oh okay uh, <laughs> I, I, I might have done this wrong but no but it, it's it's actually worked in my favor a lot because um a lot of people have said oh I'm at the six o'clock slot which again a, a few people were a bit wary like they were saying be wary of that because people are at work and so they you know they'll mm. have to come straight from work but equally you know people who are coming to it are like well actually we want to kickstart our night with an hour of fun mm. and then we'll go and see a choir and we'll go and see some circus and we'll go and see some hypnotist or whatever mm. and 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 people who i'm talking to are saying actually it's nice to have that in my night 
but like equally as a performer as a comedian you don't necessarily want to be their 11 p.m slot because like yeah. you said there might be some noise bleed but they might also be a bit pissed by that point <laughs> yeah. and 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 you won't get through a joke if you know they're yelling stuff out so so it's sort of interesting looking at it from uh, i'm here but the outside mm. and sort of reflecting on my what your expectations were coming in versus kind of what the reality has been for you. Yeah, because a few yeah. people have asked me, oh, you know, what's it been like? What's it like? And I keep saying, I'll tell you when it's done. <laughs> like, like I'm still, I'm still here. figuring it out. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, and I'm probably not going to know for at least another two years. Um, but I'm, find, I'm finding it interesting hearing your side of it and hearing and hearing your sort of, obviously your background's going to take a big impact on onto what you book and what it's been doing. Um, mm. So that, that brings me on nicely to um, your relationship with... Um, other elements of the year for the outside the festival so are you looking at like what's selling well at other venues around the year I assume I mean Gluttony's here only now Mm. do you run a venue in the city all year round do you no we we just do Gluttony as a team uh, and we do another event as well um, that doesn't actually have kind of an arts component to it uh, called the Lucky Dumpling Market which is a a food um, Mm. like a food hub for the uh, here in Adelaide there's a festival called the Oz Asia Festival which is yeah. a multicultural arts festival so that's run by the festival centre and then and we run the Lucky Dumpling Market which is like a big outdoor food mm. hub essentially yeah. um, which is great you know stalls with food from all over the world and yeah. then they also have a, a programming element that goes into the park so mm. from a programming perspective Gluttony's the only one that we do as a team mm. um, when the, the, I mean Gluttony is part time all through the year and, and full time yeah. often obviously and uh, so it never stops we're never not looking for things we're never mm. not um, looking around to see what you know what the hot things are or what new things are getting made what emerging artists are kind of coming out and, and creating work so that all is is a factor for us but we also uh, myself and my business partner also have other jobs kind of adjacent to this so my business partner runs um, big music festivals Mm -hmm. um, mostly here in Adelaide but interstate as well and my job outside of this is making and touring work so uh, there's work that I bring here to Gluttony but also um, that I you know take over to Edinburgh Fringe or Mm. um, yeah tour around Australia and and overseas as well so it's nice that everything sort of fits into the same world and Mm. and from that perspective it does make it easier to see things so the show that I mentioned that I saw in London was when I was over there with one of my own shows that I was directing and so yeah I mean that means that I'm getting within gluttony and outside of gluttony travel basically all over the world yeah um, seeing seeing different work and seeing what works at different festivals so good job it's a good job yeah <laughs> worse jobs there are worse jobs I mean yeah. you know it'd be nice if I paid more but you know <laughs> it says everyone in so the arts everyone in the arts <laughs> um, well that's interesting because in I found an article it was 2019 so it was last year about how you've invested more in food and drink to like up your game with because also not just so it's just to paint an extra bit of picture you you can walk around the park and obviously there are tents and venues everywhere but there's also two main areas but they've also scattered around uh, where you can get food and, and sort of quite quick food as well as like sort of slightly more gourmet stuff and I was going to ask you it feels like that also links into your heritage of being a food festival yeah. um, but I was wondering what the w- what's pulling people in and how you're working for yourself as well as the artist to get people into the park especially now that uh, you know obviously in the last however many years you've got a, a competitor literally on your doorstep doing a very similar thing in fairness mm. I have got to say they came first so oh, did th- so the garden okay. <laughs> edit point <laughs> yeah just before I mean <laughs> hey keep it in you know yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but no the, the garden the garden came first so so we very much kind of 
um, were on their doorstep. Mm. Um, and we actually, I mean, I've only we been are, it eight days. I'm not going to know everything. Like, <laughs> I want to make that to clear. It. It's fine. No, we, we, I mean, we obviously have, uh, you know, have uh, competitiveness, mm. but also we have a great relationship with them and, and with mm. RCC, which is sort of the other big hub, which has changed identity quite a lot in the last few years. But we do, we do have a good relationship because we sort of have more in common than we do, you know, in mm. competition in some ways. And so, uh, but, you know, having that different identity is really important. You know, one of the things that the garden has are lots of rides and kind of sideshow uh, elements, which is great and you know um, provides a great time but we sort of said we we want to predominantly be an arts park and so um so that's why we sort of said that we don't have any rides all of the things that people can interact with here in the park that i guess are sort of along those same lines as rides uh have got an interactive element to them and so so we've got like a nerf arena that people can you know come in and play there's you know a bunch of different games that they can sort of play with the nerf guns we've got a big flying trapeze rig that people can come and do workshops but also watch performances and things so We've tried to keep that stuff sort of in that realm of, of an arts park. And yeah, with the food, it was interesting because we, you know, as I said, we started as a, a food and wine hub. And then and then when we became an arts hub, we actually scaled back the food that we were offering because we were quite small then. And we sort of thought we want to make sure that the food vendors that we have do really well. So we want to limit the number that we have so that, you know, everyone can do really well. But what we discovered, particularly after running the, the Lucky Dumpling Market, is that people will actually come here for food. And if we mm. have got a huge range of really excellent options of food um, then people will come for that alone and if people are coming for the food then they'll stay for a show mm. and that's what we're all about and so um, so we've actually in the last few years really significantly increased the number of food vendors that we have and also the quality so we have someone now who's our, our food and beverage manager and he is so passionate about good quality food local ingredients you know very very sort of high quality but still that street food element that food Truck yeah. kind of element so as you said it's you know it's fast food but but also sort of really good quality food and and you know that alone makes groups of people you know groups of friends or families come in because they want to come in here and and eat in a space where they can kind of get all of this really diverse sort of fast food and and you know and those people then are staying for a show and and the stats that we have around the number of people that are coming into the park you know compared with the number of people who are buying tickets says that people come into the park and and buy a ticket to a show that they really are engaging with things and so yeah that's one of the one of the things that we found actually really supports the the artists is is having that really great range of of food and wines and um uh, yeah uh, other things that they can kind of that will draw them in um and then they can you know impulse buy a ticket to a show when yeah. when people are walking around flyering and, and having a chat with them yeah totally i, I was gonna say and, and you know this is something that I've discussed with um, Gemma and, and, and the team before I came here, but it would be good to get your perspective on what sells tickets. Like, do you have, I mean, I assume you do some sort of survey or you or you keep track of, you know, everything behind the scenes, but it, it would be good to sort of discuss, you know, uh, you know, because I've been talking to a few people about like online social ads and seeing if those work. And some people are saying, great, you know, that's been like my big seller. Uh, whereas some people have said, I've put a lot of money behind it and I'm sure it's given me some exposure, but I've not really sold any, or, I, or at least I can't track a sale from mm. it. Because obviously you can track up to a certain point, but you, you can't be 100% sure. And, and equally, flyering, flyering is a big thing here, like it is in Edinburgh. It's not quite the same because there's obviously more restrictions in the city and mm. and it'd be great to sort of talk about your restrictions internally in the park because obviously you've got the environmental elements that you want to keep going which mm. i really feel edinburgh should be doing more of if i'm completely honest so so yeah so what is selling tickets what are your uh, tips and hints and where do people yeah, make mistakes it depends a little bit on 
the show, obviously, course, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course the as budget. <laughs> yeah, 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 as always. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think I think that. Uh, look, d- to me, the best marketing advice I could give to anyone is know what your show is and who it's for mm. and then make sure that your collateral supports that. And I think the best thing that you can do is have uh, a name for your show and an image for your show that tell the audience what kind of experience they're going to have. They don't need to know a, a synopsis of the show. They need to know what kind of show it's going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, are they going to leave feeling like they've just been laughing for an hour? Are they going to feel moved? Are they going to feel like they saw something that was unique and special? Are they going to uh, you know, is it going to be grim? Is it going to be, you know, what's the experience that they're going to have? That's actually what you're selling to people. It's not, it's got nothing to do with you or what the, you know, what the narrative of the show is or anything like that. That, that the audience wants to buy happiness or a sense of whimsy or uh, you know a sense of spectacle that's that's what they're actually buying so I think that if your image can capture that if the name of your show can capture that then I think that that's um, I think that that's you know really strong I think I mean I think your mm. show is a great example of that that like the name that, you. you know the name <laughs> uh, tells you something about the kind of experience you're going to have mm. and so I think that uh, I think that that's the first thing that you should do that's the best service that you can do for yourself is mm. having a, a name and an image that tells people something about what experience they're going to have. Then I think it's worth thinking about. So, you know, they say they say in marketing that people have to see uh, the same image multiple times yes. to buy it. Now, I think that that is true most of the time. But I think that there are certain things that you can do that can stand alone sell someone on seeing a show. I think flyering is one of those things. If you have a good flyering game you know if you know how to engage with people and you know who to approach you know the kind of conversations to have I think that you uh, you're going to have you know that that alone they might never have heard of your show before but if you go and have a good conversation with someone that may be enough for them to buy a ticket to a show I think that there's other things that can be done in that same way I think uh, some of those things are budget restrictive I think that advertising in the Adelaide Fringe Guide is really powerful Mm. Uh, and same with the gluttony guide I think that here in Adelaide it's an established enough festival that people will literally pick up a guide and based on that alone will decide what to see and so if you can it's it's expensive but mm. if you can afford to if you've got a, a big show with a big marketing budget then an ad in one of those guides is another example of a standalone marketing technique they might not read it anywhere else they might not see uh, you know a poster or a billboard or mm. whatever but just seeing an ad in the fringe guide may be enough to convince them to come so I think if you can think about those sorts of tactics and say, that's where I'm going to put my money. I'm going to put my money where that one thing alone might be enough to convince somebody to come and see my show. And if you've got that strong that strong show name, that strong hero image, uh, then that may be enough to get them in the door. I think for me, the one mistake that people make is posters. I okay. think unless you have got a, a big budget and people are seeing you everywhere, I don't think posters are worth it. That's not all the time, but I think here in Adelaide and with a lot of big festivals, it's just a sea of posters. There are 1,200 shows here at Adelaide Fringe Festival. There's 1,200 different posters floating around. So people aren't going to see a poster if they've never seen you before. It's going to stand out in this you know, sea of things and go, oh, that looks cool. I mean, there's exceptions to every rule. But, Mm -hmm. you know, as a general rule, I just don't think that that's the case. Because you have to pay for the distribution here, you know, a a good poster campaign can end up costing you, you know, anywhere between a few hundred dollars to, you know, a few thousand dollars. And I just don't think that it stands out in the same way. Social media is interesting because I think that social media can by itself sell tickets. I think that it is an incredibly powerful tool. I think that for those people who are saying that it's really working for them, I think they are absolutely right. The problem with social media marketing is that it is getting more powerful and therefore more complicated. Mm -hmm. It used to be that 
most people could figure out how to place their own ad, you know, on Facebook and Instagram. I think that is not the case anymore. Certainly that wasn't the case for me. I mm. used to do all of my own ad campaigns. And a couple of years ago I went, I am not good enough at this. This is, it has gotten too complicated. And it's a good thing it's gotten more powerful. You know, the, the way that you can target people is so clever. The way that you can retarget people and capture audiences and connect it with your ticket sales. I mean, there are genuinely ways if, if your festival allows it and Adelaide does actually track if someone has bought a ticket. You can mm. imprint you know pixels into their uh into their website Mm. and actually track all that stuff the problem is that that takes a lot of time Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of complexity so if you are not someone who just knows how to do that for yourself and you won't be unless you're a specialist yeah it costs money because you have to pay someone to do it for you yeah which means that when you're talking about you know having kind of campaign money to put into social media that's only a hundred dollars or a few hundred dollars you you unless you know how to do it yourself you're just not necessarily going to have the same impact you know if you're spending a few thousand dollars or more than that then of course you can pay for somebody to run all of your campaigns for you and they can do all of this clever interconnected stuff but i think that it's yeah i think it's not not as strong i think it's still worth doing but i think you just need to you need to at least know a little bit so that you can kind of be very targeted, work out how to target people, work out the best way to kind of run a campaign, whether Mm. I think, you know, boosted posts don't get the same kind of traction (laughs) as going through ad manager. Yeah. Um, But if you've got a a post that is tracking extremely well, Mm. um, then putting a little bit of money into boosting that post, um, if you've got some clever targeting on it, is certainly better than nothing. And and it's a relatively cheap way to market compared to something like posters, if you can kind of get that targeting right, if you know just enough to kind of... Yeah, to get those things right. But it's it's complicated. Yeah. Very powerful, but complicated. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I always say to people, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I always say uh, more people will see your poster than your show. So it's much better to put time into that. Think about how much time you put into the show. Put at least a fifth into the poster because mm. it's, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the thing that's going to sell it. Mm. And, and in terms of the, the, even with the exchange rate, the cost of printing over here is so much higher then, so I actually, you know, I brought uh, flyers over from the UK. I printed mm. them and brought them in a suitcase because I worked out it was cheaper to put them in a suitcase wow. and pay extra luggage to bring it over yeah. than it was to get it printed over here. So so it's also worth bearing in mind that sort of cost for especially flyers. Yeah. 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 yeah there's definitely things that are worth uh, considering. There are there are obviously cheaper printers than others. You know, of some, are, yeah, some yeah. are expensive. That's my experience as well. Uh-huh, that uh-huh. It is cheaper in the UK to print. It, there's also other things like Facebook is huge in australia yeah no, and it's not as much you know over in the uk no. and and vice versa twitter is just not really a thing here in australia i mean i think there's still power in it for people like stand-up comedians who literally use their words for a living yeah but uh but it's not it's not as strong over here and so for me i mean i work in a visual medium and so uh, you know facebook and instagram is really powerful for mm-hmm. me but going over to the uk i got a twitter account and yeah. started learning how to use twitter uh I, you know so i would say the same like it's good to be aware of those kind of those differences between countries because mm. you know if you're if you're coming to Australia get a Facebook page yeah. you know make a Facebook event like really utilize utilize Facebook because it is still quite a big thing here yeah I mean personally I hate Facebook <laughs> and, yeah. and I had a page five years ago and I disactivated it because I was like I, real, I realize that if I carry on with this, I'm going to be looped into having to use it. And I don't want to give them my data. I just don't like anything Mark does. And I, yeah. and I feel like the site is very problematic and, and not... And it's just... 
it's awful, right? So I just didn't like yeah. it. But as soon as I realised I was coming out here, like you said, oh, I've got to re-enable it. I just had to. Yeah. Because, because even, you know, when you look into the Twitter n- the numbers over here or you look in Instagram, is big over here, but it's for, as far as I can work out, it's largely all Facebook. Yeah. Interestingly, you said that, you know, it's overly complicated. I found this on Facebook's official website. They run three online courses for you to learn Amazing. how to use adverts, which I'm going to be doing like mad when I get home uh, ahead of Edinburgh <laughs> because, uh, I, you know, they... they don't get me wrong it's going to take me time to get used to it and it's going to cost me money to learn it and stuff uh, as in because i've got to buy the ads but the fact that they know it's complicated and they're willing to put out sort of on their own site it's not even like third party like youtuber going you can make a billion pounds you know those sort of videos yeah um i I was like oh okay well they've i don't feel so stupid anymore they've acknowledged it's complicated (laughs) but they want to sell the ads still because that's their platform yeah so so yeah i completely agree with the yeah, uh, mm. it's it's it's. I'll send you a link. It's very interesting. Right, yeah. So I tell you, what would probably be a good thing to to move into is awards in Edinburgh. If you are nominated, for example, that tends to hold good water around the UK for selling tickets. Yeah. What credits outside of Australia work in Australia? So maybe not just UK centric, but just are there any awards that like you know, when they see them on the poster, they get that. Because I know you have your own awards here. Yeah. But equally, if you've not been here, you can't have had that award. So yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, if if you were the best comedian in the world in America or whatever, mm. are they going to care over here? <laughs> I, I mean, my personal opinion is if you've got an award laurel on a poster, people aren't even paying attention to what it says. Right. Um, which is not to say lie because that's a dangerous game. Yes. But, uh, but I think that, um, you know, if you have awards sort of from anywhere, um, whether it's recognisable to people in Australia or not, I think that that says a lot about your show. And, you know, mm. I think that there is a certain social currency, I suppose, in things like things like award laurels, uh, things like five stars, you know, pull quotes from reviews, um, anything like that that you can kind of put on a poster. I think even if it's not something that's necessarily recognisable uh, to to audiences over here in the same way that I assume it's sort of similar over there, that, you know, if you, if you see that kind of stuff, then it does speak to a certain level of quality. You know, mm-hmm. somewhere in the world, someone has recognised this as being <laughs> the best of whatever it is. Yep. And I think that there's, I think that there's, you know, real value in that. So, yeah, I certainly wouldn't discount uh, utilising previous awards won and that sort of thing um, just because it's not necessarily something that's going to be sort of recognised uh, over here. Mm, definitely, definitely. You also have sponsors for the park. And I wondered, um, first of all, how you got about starting to get sponsors involved mm-hmm. and how they've impacted your growth, both in terms of you get a say in anything or, you know, what's what's your relationship with those brands? Sponsorship is sort of relatively new to us. We've had mm. things like drink partners for mm. a, a long time. You know, if you run bars, you tend to have drink partners. Yeah. Um, we the sponsorship though is sort of it's been a growing thing for us we try to be very careful about the the brands that we partner with and 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 the sort of level of impact that they have on the park because for us it being an arts park it is really important for example we had a couple of different sponsors come to us in the last year and they were both uh, associated with things that we felt very uncomfortable about um they were both things that without going into too much detail kind of were uh, you know, old world technology and, you know, we are um, greenies at heart and, you know, getting involved with kind yeah. of 
you know, mining type things or, mm. you know, kind of, um, you know, th- those fossil fuel industry uh, uh, sort of industries, I suppose, or companies. Uh, that's not something that we want to kind of have any part of. I think, you know, firstly, it doesn't match our ethos. And secondly, you know, I think we just get shredded by our artists. You know, it just, yeah. it, it, that doesn't match our brand. It doesn't match what we're trying to do. And so uh, for us, we do try to be quite sort of careful with, with those sort of things. Uh, you know, and, and again, that's something that we can achieve to greater or lesser extents. And there's, um, there's, you know, d- different reasons that we'd partner with different people. Um, most of our sponsors are people who have got, well, basically all are, are people who are really passionate about the Fringe Festival, uh, about the arts and, um, and carry a lot of support. We actually have very little in terms of sponsorship that is money. Most of it is just uh, an exchange. And so whether it's contra advertising for our media partners, whether it's, uh, you know, discounting the the rate that we can get the drinks at and things like that, or or whether it's things like um, this year we had uh, a drink partner who built this beautiful big bar that sits on top of uh, the hill. And so you know, in that way, they're reinvesting into our park, you know, paying for infrastructure or um, supporting artists with, with ads and, and that sort of thing. And so so that's the sort of thing that we like to sort of try and do more of. It's important to us that the park doesn't just become this big corporate <laughs> billboard, you know, that mm. it's not just these corporate brands kind of having their their face on everything. But, you know, like we're excited to partner with the, the bank that supports the overall festival because we've seen how much they genuinely uh, invest in the arts, you know, and, and that they've got, and, and same with one of our media partners, Channel 9, they've got an amazing program to, to genuinely support small and emerging artists. So, you know, those are the kind of brands that, that we want to sort of get behind is, is people who are genuinely, we're seeing, support the arts outside of kind of this big machine that is the Fringe Festival. Completely, completely. So these are the final quick fire questions um quick for me you take as long as you like so if we start with what's one unpopular opinion you have about the festival industry oh goodness what a long pause sorry <laughs> um that's a really good now question i've got to leave the pause in i can't edit that out <laughs> <laughs> i would maybe say that there are not everyone should be doing a fringe show there are really good reasons to do fringe shows and there are plenty of reasons Oh, there are plenty of people who are doing a fringe show despite not having any of those good reasons. I think that sometimes people habitually do a show at a fringe festival because that's what they've been doing forever. And I'm all about goals. I think that if you are going to do a fringe festival, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of money. And if you don't know why you're doing it, uh, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm, definitely. What is the biggest... Mis- what is the thing? The, the normal question would be, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it? But I might change it to something like... What's the biggest mistake Gluttony's ever made? Is it better? Is it better to personalise it to you, or do you think uh, there's a yeah? Thing I mean, that I could answer that. Okay, yeah. Go on then. yeah, yeah. So I think the biggest mistake that Gluttony ever made was in the second year we tried to get bigger quickly. We thought, uh, you know, we'll make a bigger a bigger site, um, you know, more venues. You know, we we sort of had all these grand ideas, and it didn't really work in the second year. You know, it's there were a lot of problems with that second year. We have grown every year since. Well, well, we shrank in the in the third year, Mm. Uh, but every every year since then we've grown and grown really significantly. And every year I say we're not going to grow again, and we do. But we the way that we grow now is driven by the artists, and that is what makes it a sustainable growth. So. 
now when we add a venue, it's because we have incredible artists who are dying to be in the park and we just couldn't say no to. Mm. And that is a really sustainable way to grow, I think, mm. because if we know that this artist is coming in, we know that they've got an audience, we know that they're tapping into an audience that doesn't already exist with another show uh, that's in the park, then we know that that's going to be a new audience that's coming into the park for that show in particular. And that's a really sustainable way to grow. But I think in the second year, you know, we got excited about all these things that we could do being a bigger park and uh, and it didn't work. So, yeah, we think we really took a lesson from that and, and have this very sustainably kind of minded way of growing now that's about, that, about supporting the arts. Definitely, definitely. What is the most interesting thing you do that no one ever gets to see? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, I think that there are... I think the opposite to that is that um, I do a lot of really boring things, things that sound really, you know, I think that my job sounds really exciting. And, Same. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, th- and so many people don't kind of realise that, you know, half the time you're just sort of sitting behind a computer. Um, yeah. So I think that that's, I think more that's kind half. of... It's more than half the time. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right, <laughs> yeah. that's right. So, uh, I mean, that's kind of the opposite to what you've asked me, but I think that that's the biggest <laughs> maybe surprise is mm. that people think as a programmer that all we do is like swan around the world seeing shows and you know drinking champagne with artists after the shows and things but actually so much of it is just sitting there and slogging in front of a computer so I think that that's yeah like I said that's kind of the opposite to what you've asked me I'm not sure exactly what the most interesting thing that no one knows that I do would be I'll think on that well no you've answered the, ne- <laughs> the, the next question was going to be what's the biggest misconception and I feel like you've answered yeah. that one oh, well, great so you're doing them in the wrong order <laughs> Um, who do you think is the most underrated person at the Adelaide Festival? Um, you can say you. Uh, <laughs> no, definitely not me. Uh, I think that people think I have a level of importance that I don't have sometimes. Um, same, same. I think, I mean, the, you know you know what, actually? I mean, there are so many people. There is it's such a big team that go into make this up. But mm. I would say the one person who people probably underrate the most is the, uh, I was going to say, the, we call them the binges. Um, the binges and the toilet cleaners. You notice when a festival is full of rubbish, when the toilets are disgusting, when they smell, when you know they haven't been cleaned, when pipes are overflowing, bins are overflowing. God, you notice, but you don't notice when those things are not happening. Yeah. Uh, and I, like I tell you, what the number of times that I've walked into, you know, one of obviously we have temporary toilets because we're all, you know, it's a, it's a park. The number of times that I've walked into toilets here and they've just been sparkling clean, and I'm like, oh nothing like walking into a festival toilet when it's just been cleaned yeah but i think that people don't even notice those jobs but they sure as hell notice when they're not there so i would say they are probably the most underrated mm-hmm. uh workers at a festival our, our binges and our toilet cleaners totally i second that <laughs> definitely what do you think's the biggest problem at the adelaide fringe and how would you go about solving it it's a great question there are problems i mean there's problems with any festival mm-hmm. One of the things is that Adelaide Festival or Adelaide Fringe Festival has grown a lot in the last few years. And with that growth means that there are certain shows that are left behind. I think one of the problems is, as I said, there's a lot of people who do fringe shows because they've always done fringe shows and they should probably stop because this is not (laughs) necessarily the right festival for them anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Festivals change and with those changing identities, I think you need to be flexible. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means that this festival you've done a thousand times is not the festival for you anymore. Yeah. So, so sometimes I think that rather than complaining about the problems that you're having, you just need to find the right festival for you because there are so many festivals mm-hmm. in the world and every show has got a festival that is a perfect fit for them. Yeah. 
But I think that there's still a lot that can be done. I think that a lot of people look at Adelaide Fringe and say it's a really commercial festival now. There are so many big shows with huge marketing budgets and that that is really disadvantaging the smaller medium shows. And I actually don't think that that's always true. I think there are certain shows that don't necessarily have an audience anymore at, at the Adelaide Fringe that perhaps used to and that is really sad. Mm. But we are doing a lot and as sort of as much as we can to really help to support those small to medium shows because I actually think that while you look at the big shows and you say they're sucking up all of the audiences you know there's 600 people walking into that tent and and you know I'm struggling to get 20 people in mine but actually probably the majority of those 600 people were never going to come to the Fringe Festival they're only coming out because Marsha Hines is here or you know or this show that they've heard about on TV or this you know this TV comedian those people aren't actually necessarily the audience that were going to come out and see this quirky friend show they'd never heard of. But once they're in the park, once they've had a wine after yep. the show that they've seen, maybe they will stick around and see something that they would never have seen otherwise. Mm. So I actually think that there's perhaps that's the kind of biggest misconception is that those big shows are stopping the small and medium shows from being able to operate. And I mm. actually think it's just about finding clever ways of converting those audiences into your audiences, mm. you know, and then next year those audiences become the kind of people who are going to come out and see a quirky fringe show they haven't heard of because they saw something excellent on a whim the year before. We do quite a lot to try and support the small and medium companies. We run uh, marketing one-on-ones. We do, you know, online live videos and um, we make ourselves and our team available as much as we possibly can in the lead up to the festival mm. to, to help people. It's certainly not to say that it's not a struggle. You know, when there are shows that have got marketing budgets of $100,000, it can be hard to compete with them. Mm. But I think rather than thinking of those people as your competition, or those shows as your competition, but looking at those shows as your opportunities, I actually yeah. think that there's real power in that. Yeah, no, uh, I used to feel that way in Edinburgh. Like mm. I would see, you know, I was be in a small room next to a big room and see, oh, they're managing to get in. But you don't know you're, you're living your own festival and they're living their own festival. And you don't know what they've done to get a thousand mm. people in on a Monday or whatever mm. it is. So, <laughs> so and by the way, if you're getting a thousand people on a Monday, oh, you are doing it right. Well, you could do anywhere, <laughs> like frankly, but but it, it's sort of um, and and I feel like it's a maturity in that as well because a mm-hmm. lot of people, if you see if you see it everyone as competition you're sort of not really being in the arts you're sort of being within yourself yeah and i feel like everyone needs Mm. to you know what i mean yeah Mm. so completely agree with that Mm. um if you had an extra hour in the day how would you spend it (laughs) i would love to say relaxing but the reality is i probably would be just doing more of what i'm doing more emails (laughs) yeah usually emails uh although i brought my dog to adelaide for the first time this year uh which one's your dog because i've uh, met them yeah, he's Vada. Oh, Vada. Yes, uh, I yeah. did meet him. Yeah. He's been around. Uh, he's adorable. He is adorable. Yeah. He's, he's, an, he's an old man, and so yeah. he just wants to sit down and have cuddles with everyone, which is convenient at a French festival where there's just thousands of people who want to give him cuddles. I heavily relate to all of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He was lovely, and you got him a little pass, I remember. We did. He was the first one who got a pass, I oh. think, before any any of the rest of our, uh, our management team, any of our artists, any of our staff got a pass. Priorities. Vada got a pass. That's Pro- right. Priorities. Priorities. But yeah, no, so I think probably, I mean, in an ideal world, I'd spend an extra hour walking with him or playing oh. with him in a park or something yeah. <laughs> yeah ideally not this park because then they'll get roped into something yeah. yeah what's the best bit of advice you've ever been given oh my goodness <laughs> I th- I think I, d- I don't know that it was ever advice as such I don't remember one person saying this to me but I think it's something that my parents empowered me with and I think that it comes I must say with you know with with privilege it's not something that everyone has the ability to do but I think that giving me 
uh, a confidence to jump headfirst into something that I didn't know if I was going to be able to do. I think that that is something that I've done my whole life. Um, I've just had an idea and I've gone for it, whether I had the, the skills or the training or, you know, the uh, I've just I've had the confidence to kind of jump into things. And I think that that is uh, a, a boldness that is um you know really celebrated in the arts and has helped me mm. enormously in my career and I mean you know 10 years ago I would not have said that this is where I was going to be this is what I was going to be doing but I've just kind of taken opportunities that I thought were exciting and gone for it and that is certainly advice that I would give to other people if they have the privilege to be able to do that and I'm, I'm well aware that it's not something that everyone has the ability to do but mm. Yeah, yeah, you know, jumping in, doing things, just going for it. If you're excited about something, just do it and see what happens. What's one thing you wish you were better at? Time management. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, time management. I um, I am habitually late to everything and it drives my partner and everyone in my life absolutely crazy. And mm. uh, if it is, it is one thing I wish I was better at, mm. not only for my own sake and, and for the sake of what I do for work but uh more than anything for the people in my life because yeah. i am constantly letting people down in that way and mm. if i was better at it uh yes that would be amazing definitely <laughs> what's one thing you think you're great at uh jumping in headfirst to things I, I, and i think and i think i'm really good at troubleshooting when things are going to shit i think uh i yeah i think when things are, are going wrong i think that's when i'm when I'm at my element is looking around and coming up with really weird creative solves to things which makes this the perfect industry because it doesn't matter how much planning you do things are going to go to shit oh definitely <laughs> definitely um, what was your first artistic scar or stumbling block that really helped define you oh wow I mean I can't start with that one can I you know like you've got to yeah. wait a bit and get through you know <laughs> it's like Eminem didn't start with rap god as a song you know he built up to that yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean I mean, being the kind of person that I am, I think I jumped into all sorts of things that I wasn't quite ready for. But I think that um, I've always been pretty good at looking around and and not thinking that things that I'm doing are perfect. And so uh, I've always been quite self-critical. So, I mean, I've, I've made some terrible shows over the years. I've, <laughs> I've, I've been standing on stage as a performer going... This is awful. The, <laughs> this is awful. What am I doing? But, you know, sometimes the worst things that you make or the worst things that you see uh, have got the biggest lessons in them. So, mm. you know, I think there's power in that too. Yeah, definitely. And last question. Uh, if you could give uh, a couple of thousand comedians one bit of advice if they want to bring a show to either Adelaide as a general or Gluttony specifically, what would you say to them? Do your research and know why you're coming. Ask as many questions of as many people as possible who've done it before and know exactly why you want to do it. Don't just come because you feel like it. I mean, actually, if, if you want to come for an adventure and that's why you want to come, that's great. That's a great reason. Mm. Your reason doesn't have to be, I'm going to go and make a million dollars. It probably shouldn't be. <laughs> you shouldn't be. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that bloody shouldn't be. <laughs> but I think being really clear about what your goal is, no matter what it is, if it's having an adventure, if it's meeting people on the other side of the world, I think that's fine. But, but know what it is because mm. if you're here and you're not selling very many tickets but you keep reminding yourself that you're actually here for the adventure, then great, go to the beach, learn how to surf, go, mm. you know, go walking up in the hills, go try some wine you've never had before and don't beat yourself up about not selling as many tickets. Remind yourself mm. that you're here for the adventure. So if you know why you're here and keep reminding yourself, you're going to have a great time. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Eleanor. I loved chatting with her and meeting her pup Vada. They, the pup was very cute. You've all missed out amazingly. 
and if you do apply for the festival, I, I think Varda is very much a plus point of this venue over any of the others. The whole team at Gluttony were amazing and so supportive. If I can ever get enough money together again, or the live circuit actually gets back on its feet, I will totally be emailing them to take a new show back out there. If you like this episode, you might also like episode 90 with Joe O'Callaghan from the Adelaide Fringe, who explains a little bit more about the logistics of taking a show out to Adelaide. And I also have a podcast coming out in a few months with the Sydney Fringe, which is well worth watching out for. I'm still unable to gig thanks to the coronavirus um, and basically just editing podcasts for myself and other people. If you have something you would like me to edit, feel free to drop me an email. There is a link in the show notes. If you have enjoyed this or you have been enjoying the podcast in general and you would like to support me uh, not go hungry while this virus is murdering every part of the entertainment industry, you can give me a one-off donation via PayPal or you can become a Patreon from $1.00. That's 80p. It's probably less now, given the pound's probably crashed. But uh, at the time of recording, that's approximately what it was worth. Any and all donations are massively appreciated. Also, if you want more podcasts from me, you can check out my new podcast. It's kind of just a chatty one called Quarantine, and it should be linked below. If you're new here, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review in iTunes. And either way, please do join the Facebook group. It's called Ask the Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. The Ask the Industry podcast has been a fruit that got in gravity's way production for the internet. All elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for subscribing. And thank you very much for rating and donating if you do. I'll see you all in about 14 days time. Bye! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.